Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Unruffled ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. There's nothing like being totally engrossed in a good mystery or thriller. Audible has thousands of immersive audiobook titles to spark your imagination and get your heart thumping. Since it's summer, you might want to check out The Vacation Rental. Very well told and very unsettling. You won't want to turn it off. And since this is a parenting podcast, I should also mention that audiobooks are a wonderfully enriching experience for children because they aren't passive entertainment like other kids' media. They engage your child's imagination and can nurture both listening and language skills. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible for free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash unruffled or text unruffled to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. That's audible.com slash unruffled or text unruffled to 500-500 today. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected. After investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Hi, this is Janet Lansbury. Welcome to Unruffled. Today, I have the great pleasure and honor of welcoming a guest to the podcast, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt. She is a professor of psychology at Stanford University. She's the recipient of a 2014 MacArthur Genius Grant. She's the co-founder and co-director of Spark which is a Stanford center that brings together researchers and practitioners to address significant problems. And Jennifer has focused her work on bias, and she has a groundbreaking new book called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. It is her personal journey to understanding how bias works in the brain and how racial bias particularly has developed beginning at its roots. And then she also talks about how she applies her research in America's boardrooms and police precincts to come up with constructive solutions to affect change. Thank you again for being here, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. First of all, I just want to say that I was completely blown away by your book. I found it so deeply moving, your journey, all the stories that you shared. I can't recall learning so much from a single book. The way that you share your writing was just so eloquent. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I mean, I appreciate it uh, for sure. And I'm, I'm just so happy that it resonated with you. It certainly did. And for listeners, I think it would be great to start out with talking about the basics, how bias is formed, what its purpose is for us as humans, and how it works. Sure. So maybe it would be easiest to start with a discussion of categories, right? So, you know, our brains, we create categories to make sense of the world. And those categories allow us to assert some kind of 
you know, coherence and control over the stimuli that we're bombarded with on a daily basis. And so we have categories for everything, right? For cars and for furniture and, you know, for anything that you can think about. Um, And we also have categories for people. And so our brains are kind of grouping like things together, basically. And we do this instinctively by relying on patterns that seem predictable, But just as the categories that we create can serve as this shorthand and can allow us to make these split second decisions, you know, about things, they also reinforce bias. And so the very abilities that help us to see the world are the the same things that blind us to it. And I study racial bias in particular, and racial bias is a force that's so powerful that it can influence everything from, you know, who uh, teachers discipline in school to who's hired and promoted in the workplace. Um, And in the criminal justice system, it can affect, you know, everything from who cops see as suspicious on the streets to who who, uh, jurors are going to sentence to die in prison. So I'm, I'm looking at, in the book and in my work, I look at how bias works and how racial disparities can create bias as well. So, so bias can lead to disparities like in the criminal justice system, in our schools, in our workplaces. But simply witnessing those disparities, taking in those uh, disparities in those spaces can reinforce bias. And so there's like a two-way or sort of bi-directional relationship here. So it's like a, a cycle that... One- it is, one creates the other and then that reinforces the other. Yep. So what can we do to disrupt this? Are there things that we can do to help ourselves to recognize our own biases, be more aware of them and change them? So, I mean, I can give you examples of, you know, ways in which people have disrupted bias in in their own spaces. One example would be with teachers. So, so I've done work showing that, you know, teachers will discipline black middle school students much more harshly than white students for the same repeated infractions. And that's because, you know, teachers are thinking about, you know, those repeated infractions for, for black students as being taught, one is tied to the other, like they see it as a pattern of misbehavior that needs to be shut down. And, and they see it as indicative of that child when that child is black being a troublemaker. But for white students, they don't see one instance of misbehavior as connected to the other. So they don't make this sort of overarching a judgment about a white child who misbehaves, or at least not to the same degree or in the same way. And so we um, see this, and even we see this for Black children who are different children. So one Black child misbehaves, for example, and then a different Black child misbehaves. The, a teacher might respond to you know, that second Black student as though he's misbehaved twice, right? So it's almost like the, the sins of one child can get piled onto the other. But we don't, uh, we don't see teachers doing that so much for white students. They sort of, they think about white students as being individuals. And, and so what one white child does has absolutely nothing to do with what another white child does. So we've done this work. And so we were thinking about, well, what could disrupt that? Like, how could we arm teachers in a way where it doesn't trigger bias and where they're not contributing to these racial disparities in in terms of discipline? 
so one of the, the co-authors on the paper and the research I just described, his name is Jason Oconifa. So he was looking at empathy as a way for disrupting this. What he did was help teachers to reframe why it is that they were disciplining students and then also, you know, what it was that caused children to misbehave. So to kind of broaden their focus to think about not just the misbehavior in the moment, but to think about what was producing that misbehavior. You know, the teachers learned about the whole issue of mistrust, you know, in school settings. Uh, They learned about what that child's worries were, their worries of being treated, you know, unfairly or, or, or treated differently because of their race and all of that. And then those teachers were taught how to sort of think about discipline in a way that would draw the child into the classroom rather than pushing them further away. And so they thought about, you know, when they needed to discipline a child to do that in a way that, you know, kind of showed care for the child rather than, again, pushing him out of the classroom. And they found that by just using that simple technique of sort of kind of changing the mindset of teachers, they were able to cut the suspension rate in half. Wow. So part of that is that you gave them a way to see children that they were lumping into a group in their minds as more likely to have problems and to misbehave, that you help them to see them as individuals that each have their own issues and their own reasons for behaving as they do, and their own sensitivities. And you allowed them to poke holes in the group mentality. And then also poke hole in the narrative, you know, about that group, because there's a way in which people so say that black children in that context are disproportionately misbehaving. But even in that case, right, you can think about, well, why is that the case? Like, what is it about this context that's producing that rather than simply looking at the children as troublemakers or looking at the children as the source of the problem? And so I think that's how we need to think about bias as well more generally. It's not just that people are biased or not, right? There's something about the context that we're in that could trigger uh, bias. And as that bias gets triggered, it can influence uh, the decisions we make and it can influence the actions that we take. Right. And in your book, you talked about that one was speed, that when we don't have a lot of time to make a decision, that's when we tend to fall back on bias and also stress level, right? Yeah, both of those. I've looked at this actually in the policing context, along with uh, some colleagues at Stanford. We uh, went in and we worked with the police department on how to reduce the number of stops they were making of people who were not committing any serious crimes. And we did that by slowing officers down. So, you know, before each and every stop they made, we had them ask themselves a question, and that was, is this stop intelligence-led, yes or no? And by that, they meant just, you know, do I have credible evidence to tie this particular person to a specific crime, right? And so just asking themselves that question, just pausing, adding that friction there changed their mindset, and it also changed uh, what they did. And so we found that uh, with the addition of this simple question, you know, at the time they were making the decision whether to stop someone or not, we found that it reduced the number of African-American stops by over 43%. Wow. Now, simply adding that pause 
And giving them some specifics to slow down their process. Exactly. You sort of slow down, but you're also, you know, encouraging them to use objective standards rather than subjective standards to make a decision. And so you're not going on intuition, which would be subjective, right? But you're forcing them to sort of think about using evidence of criminal wrongdoing to make the decision. And so you're pushing them to be more objective. That's so wonderful. So like you could think, well, what does that mean for me? And I'm not a police officer and stopping people and making these decisions. But I think the take home point is that you can disrupt your own bias by slowing down, by calming down, right? Uh, By asking yourselves the right question and then by holding yourselves accountable. So it's the same principles involved, whether you're a police officer or whether you're a parent. Right. And what would that look like for a parent, do you think? Are there any examples you can think of to help parents understand Yeah, that? well, you know, one of the examples I start the book out with is um, when I was on an airplane with my son, you know, who was just five years old at the time, and he was just really excited about being on this plane with mommy, and he's looking all around, and he's checking everybody out, and he sees this man, and he points at him, and he says, hey, that guy looks like daddy. And then I look at the guy and he doesn't look anything at all, like my husband, like nothing at all. Then at that point, I realized that this man was the only black man on the plane. (laughs) I'm getting set to have this discussion with my son about how not all black people look alike, right? But before I could have that discussion, my son, he looks up at me and he says, I hope that man doesn't rob the plane. And I said, what? Now, what did you say? And he says it again. He says, well, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. I said, well, why would you say that? You know, daddy wouldn't rob a plane. And he says, yeah, yeah, I know. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he looked at me with this really sad face. And he said, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. Right. So this is an example of how, you know, we're living with such severe racial stratification that even a five year old can tell us what's supposed to happen next. You know, even with no evildoer, even with no, you know, explicit hatred, this association between blackness and crime had entered the mind of my five year old. And it enters the minds of all of our children and into all of us. And so the the issue there and how to disrupt that is talking to our children, right? Asking, how did you get that thought? Why are you thinking that? Why did you come to that conclusion, right? And helping them to interrogate their own minds so that you can make the unconscious associations, these implicit associations that they're developing, even as children, you can make those more explicit so that they can question them. And then you help them to practice this to the point where they can do that on their own, like without your assistance, right? They can think, why did I have that thought at this moment? And I think that's the first step, you know, we have to take towards reducing and sort of mitigating bias. It's adding friction, right? It's slowing down. It's it's sort of reflecting on how we got to this decision or that decision, how we decided to take this action and not that action. Right, that makes sense. And then also making sure that we're coming from a place of calm in ourselves when we're having those discussions with children so that it doesn't become 
you shouldn't say these things and now I'm judging you and you should be afraid to talk about these things or say what's on your mind. So that tightrope walk as well. Um, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. And I think sometimes parents just decide not to walk that tightrope, right? They, they decide it's better not to even bring up race. And there are a lot of parents who have been you know, taught to be colorblind and that that is the way to raise a child. Because the idea is that if you can't see color, how could you be biased? But the research shows us that when you're teaching children not to see color, you know, you're also teaching them not to see the bias that can come from it. You know, you're teaching them to close their eyes to the discrimination uh, that can come from it. And so right. that's a real You actually problem. did a study on that. Yeah, they did a study on that uh, where they took fourth and fifth graders. They, you know, exposed them to this blatant uh, discrimination, right? And so they exposed them to this situation where a child uh, knocks down another child and punches him on the soccer field, right? And they asked, well, why did you do that? And the child says, oh, I did because he's black. And I don't like black people or black people are aggressive or violent. And so I hit him before he could hit me, something like that. And so for the children who were taught to be colorblind and that that was the way to be a good person, only half of them saw that as an instance of discrimination, right? Whereas when, you're, when you teach children to actually notice color and to, to be comfortable in sort of talking about that, the vast majority of them were also able to see that push and that knockdown on the soccer field as an act of racial discrimination. So their eyes were open to that. Whereas when the children were taught to be colorblind, their eyes were closed to it. Yeah. So we want to teach children that there are different races and people look different. And do we want to teach them that minority populations, that there is historical prejudice against them. And I mean, what, at what age do we want children to, to know that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I mean, you know, sometimes the intuition is to not have those discussions too soon, right? Because you want to preserve the innocence of kids. But I think, you know, there's a way when we don't have those discussions that we're sort of exposing them to a lot that they don't understand. And we're kind of leaving them on their own to grapple with it. I think that Black parents, you know, tend to talk to their children earlier about race than white parents. But even uh, in 2014, when we were you know, having protests across the country about uh, Michael Brown's death at the hands of police. You, you might remember this was in Ferguson, Missouri, and there was a lot of discussion then, you know, around race and policing, right? And so I didn't necessarily want to expose my children to this. They were still in elementary school uh, at the time. And um, the elementary school principal actually asked me to come in to talk to the school about race and policing. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that was the last thing I wanted to do. And it was a mostly white uh, school. And so I knew that a lot of the parents were focused on uh, being colorblind as a way to, you know, kind of shield their children from bias. And so I was thinking the last thing they wanted, you know, was for me to come in and talk about such a heavy and difficult topic, you know, with kindergartners even, because it was going to be a whole school assembly. 
what got me to feel okay about going in was I was taking my kids to school one day and on NPR, they were talking about Baltimore and there were, there were protests going on and there were fires and they, people were protesting the death of Freddie Gray there. And uh, I was listening to it and my kids were in the back seat and I hear this voice from the back seat and it was, mommy, mommy, why is Baltimore on fire? And when I heard my child's voice, I thought, wow, they're listening to this story too, right? They're hearing the same thing I'm hearing. And, and it was at that moment I realized, you know, when we don't talk to our children about what's going on, we do leave them to fend for themselves. They're having to make sense of all this stuff all on their own. Like we're not protecting them by not talking to them. We're, we're making them more vulnerable in a way. And so that was the moment that I decided I wanted to go into the school and talk to kids about race and policing. And I was eager to do it. And so I went in and I talked to them and I cannot tell you, they were so engaged. Even the kindergartners were raising their hands when I asked questions. Everybody had thoughts on this and they were eager to just get those thoughts out and to have this real discussion about what was going on in our nation right then. And here we are again, right, as a nation, going through the same thing. How many of us are having these discussions with our children about what's happening right now? This is a heavy, heavy time. And children are so aware. They don't understand the specifics. They need help framing this so that they can understand. But they're totally aware that people are upset, that there's really scary things going on. And it's even worse, as you said, if we don't put words to it. It is, for sure. I mean, it leaves them bewildered. It leaves them confused. It leaves them scared, actually. Yes. Why is this so terrible that no one can even tell me what's going on? Yeah. Well, your book is so timely. One thing that you say is uh, the mistake we all keep making is in thinking that our work is done, that whatever heroic effort we've made will keep moving us forward, that whatever progress we've seen will keep us from sliding back to burning crosses and hiding Torah scrolls. And then you say moving forward requires continued vigilance. It requires us to constantly attend to who we are how we got that way, and all the selves we have the capacity to be. That's right. That's true now more than ever, right? Now more than ever. And the way that you write the book, you're sharing your journey of discovery. As I recall, your interests have sort of peaked when you uh, were in middle school, in a mostly white middle school, and you had difficulty distinguishing the different girls that you know were making friends with you. I found that fascinating because I'd really never thought of that happening, but I've never been myself in a situation where everyone was of a different race or most people were of a different race than me. So I, I've never had that experience, but I thought it was fascinating and really um, telling as to the power of our categorization that we do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, up until I was 12 years old, I was in an all-Black world. Um, this was in Cleveland, Ohio. And, you know, everybody was African-American in my neighborhood, my school, my teachers, whatever stores I visited. You know, it was just anybody that I had any meaningful relationship with was Black. 
And then my parents decided we we're going to move to uh, this white suburb when I was going into middle school. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I was like nervous, right, about moving there because I didn't know much about the place, but I knew that Black people did not live there. And so somehow we were going to live there. And so I was nervous about how I would be treated and received and so forth. And I get there and, you know, the students were super nice and they were welcoming and, and all of that. <laughs> but um, I still had problems making friends because I could not tell their faces apart initially. And I was confused by that. And it was like, what's going on with my brain? Like, how come I can't tell one person from the other? And, and it was really because I had not been, you know, exposed to white people, like white faces on a daily basis. And so my brain didn't have practice at sort of learning how to sort, <laughs> you know, sort those faces and individuate those faces. And so it took me some time and it, you know, over time, obviously I was able to, you know, tell one white face from another, but at that time, my brain had no practice at it. And so I had a tough time doing it, which means I had a tough time making friends because I couldn't tell, you know, who I had talked to the day before and I couldn't tell who was my friend and who wasn't almost. <laughs> so it was a, it was a difficult period, but it did wake me up to, you know, race and just really deepen my interest in, in racial issues. Everything from how, you know, my brain was working at the time to, you know, looking at the difference in resources, you know, in that community versus my old one. It was just a really sort of wealthy community and all of that. And, you know, and it seemed to be very much aligned with race, like how much uh, resources one neighborhood had versus another. And so that uh, experience piqued my interest in race and inequality. But then later when you were in college or was it graduate school when you, you really started to focus your studies and research on bias? Yeah, I actually did neuroimaging studies on this whole idea we're talking about. What's called actually the other race effect. And it's um, just the fact that people are better at recognizing faces of their own race than they are faces of other races. And with a number of colleagues at Stanford, we um, conducted the first neuroimaging study looking at this in the brain. And we found evidence for this, right, that the area of the brain called the fusiform face area is implicated in face processing. And we found that that area was um, activated less for uh, faces of, of races other than I, our own. So the thing that I experienced at 12, like we're seeing um, evidence at this neural level, right, for how it plays out in our heads. Right. And is that because we just decide I'm not going to put more energy into this other because I feel like I, I don't know, I already have an understanding of it, or I don't need to have an understanding of it, or what is that? So some of it is just sheer exposure, but then you also, you know, realize that, okay, um, if you're seeing sort of faces of other races, you, maybe you won't even feel the need to practice, like really try to sort through those faces, right? Because they mean less to you, maybe because you're interacting with them less. So it's both the exposure and then it's also you know, what our own experience requires of it, of us, and then even our attitudes, you know, about people who are sort of outside of the group that we're mostly attending to. It's interesting, too, because I think a lot of times people think about something like racial segregation, that, okay, 
people are segregated in these different neighborhoods. There's a whole history to that, right? Like in our government actually played a big role in enforcing that racial segregation. And so sometimes people will think about segregation just in terms of policy, right? Or, or sometimes they think about segregation just in terms of preferences and things. But what we're seeing is that segregation actually, it's more than policy and preference. It, it's actually something that shapes how our brains function. So you can take a, a policy or a practice or whatever it is, a preference, and then it actually you know, can influence you know, how your neurons fire in your brain. So it shapes us. Our environment, our social environment is sort of shaped us in a very deep way, in a, in a way that oftentimes we don't appreciate. And so that's why in the early years, hopefully we can influence preschools or uh, communities to create more diversity for that reason alone, that in these formative years, if we want to try to disrupt bias in its most formative time, then having preschool experiences if the parent doesn't have friends or people in their community, at least, you know, making that a priority for, for preschool, if possible. And even preschoolers can pick up our own bias, <laughs> you know, as parents. So that's another issue. I mean, so they've done research on this as well, where you have, you know, preschoolers watching an adult being treated badly by another adult. So that, you know, adult is scowling and they're leaning away from this person and they're talking to that person in a cold uh, tone. And you ask uh, children, you know, whether they want to be around this adult and whether they like this adult and they take on the bias that they see by the adult. And so in this case, one adult who was being treated negatively, another adult who was being treated positively. So they were, you know, leaning into that adult and talking in a warm tone of voice and sharing toys with the adult and so forth. And so they found that 75% of the uh, children, when asked who they preferred, they preferred that adult, uh, you know, who was being treated well. Right. And this was just like a 30 second uh, video clip of watching this treatment. And already preschoolers had seen enough to know that it was the target of bias that was responsible uh, for the bias rather than the holder of bias. Right. So they took on, you know, the same kind of attitude and stance towards the one who was treated poorly. Wow. It happened so early. I mean, think about this. Preschoolers are picking this up and, and sort of determining who's a good person, and who's a bad person. You know, I, I have another son who, when he was a first grader, he came to me and he asked me if I thought that Black people and white people were seen differently and, and kind of treated differently. And I said, well, I don't know what you mean. He says, I don't know. He said, I just feel like there's something different. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, why don't you think about it and sort of think about when you last felt that way? So he was thinking and thinking. And then he says, hey, you know, we were in uh, the grocery store the other day. And remember, there was a black guy that came in. So this was in a mostly white neighborhood. And so there weren't a lot of uh, black men who went in that store. And so he was saying, yeah, I remember he came in and it was like uh, people kind of stayed away from him a little bit. It was like he had a giant force field around him. My son was like really into Star Wars then as a first grader. And, uh, and so he was describing this in this way. And then he says, yeah. And, and when the guy got in line, I noticed that his was the shortest line because people didn't you know, want to get near him. And then I said, well, what do you think it is? And he says, I don't know. 
he was thinking about it and thinking about it. And then he looked at me and he said, I think it's fear. And I thought, wow, you know, it's a first grader picking up on this feeling, this sort of sentiment, right? And not from anything I said, nothing that the people said in the store. It was all about how they were moving through space, right? You know, that's what kids do. They attend to those kinds of things and they're trying to figure out what correlates with what, who is regarded in what way. And he was able to pick up on this idea of fear simply from watching how we are moving through the space. And so, you know, as a parent, it was just astonishing how he could come to that as a child and with such clarity about it. Wow. You know, people oftentimes will say, oh, it's from the media and, you know, kids pick up on bias, but it's, it's also from us. We are transmitting, you know, that kind of sentiment and those signals to our children, even when we're not aware of it. You're right. I mean, sure, media has effects, but nothing like the effect of the parents that they're in relationship with and the parents that they look to for, am I safe? Am I comfortable? Or, you know, the other people around them. Yeah, the parents help them to interpret what they see. You know, they can put a frame on it. And I think that framing is really important for children. They need that. Otherwise, especially how we're raised in American culture, right, to kind of think that people um, get what they get and, you know, they make their own choices and all of that. Like the structural forces that kind of keep people where they are, you know, children are completely blind to that. So they need help if they see that there's certain people who occupy sort of the lower rungs of society, I mean, children will just look at that and think, well, okay, that's who those people are, or that's where they belong, or, you know, I'm right. saying it's, it's they, they need our help in sort of comprehending what's going on around them and helping them to make sense of it, right? Right. And they come from this open place of trust. So like you said, it's, oh, if these people are being treated this way, they must deserve it because- my parent wouldn't do anything bad or wouldn't be wrong. So there must be a reason. Right. Uh, it's like that study we were talking about with the preschoolers. If you're treated bad, you are bad. You know, that's the conclusion that would be drawn there. It's a powerful enemy, this bias thing. As you've said, it's so unconscious. Yeah. And it's like, how do we fight an enemy that we can't see, right? It's hard, but it's not something that uh, we're incapable of. And I think that means talking to our children, you know, rather than shielding them from issues of race. It it means, you know, helping them to be racially literate rather than not talking about it because then they don't have the language, right? So then they grow up in these situations where it's hard to even have a conversation about race and you're even more terrified to have that conversation because you're so ill-equipped to do it. And so we want to, I think, equip our children early. And it's not like when you don't talk about it, they're not seeing it, right? It's not like when you don't talk about it, you really are shielding them from it. Yes, that's a, that's a really, really good point. I'm working now with uh, some people at Stanford where we're actually conducting a study, you know, looking at how often black and white parents talk to their children about race and inequality. And and we're also looking at what those conversations sound like. We're looking at when those conversations begin. And so, yeah, I think this is something that people are hungry for now, especially now, um, given all of, you know, the polarization and the sort of racial strife that we're facing now. 
Oh, they definitely are. And there are wonderful resources coming out and children's books and uh, wonderful ways to make these conversations come up, you know, easier for parents that, that aren't sure. But as you said, more than exposing them to books, it's those experiences is what they're feeling that's most important to help them learn and process. Because what can happen is, and I can relate to this myself from being a child, is that you're sensing something's going on. The adults that you look to to help you process the world, they're not talking about it. So you feel alone, you feel maybe scared, maybe ashamed that you are seeing things that you're not supposed to see or sensing things you're not supposed to sense. And so this whole process that could be so healthy is getting repressed. So I feel like that's uh, just as a white person, I can say that's something that we really need help with. You also said in your book how white people like get fight or flight, like when talking about race, when they're a mixed race company. And I think that's where it stems from. Yeah. You don't have the words to talk about. And then when you don't have the words, you worry that a word that you use could be <laughs> sort of taken in the wrong way and you could be labeled a racist. And so then you feel like, oh, it's better not to have the conversation. So it, it just kind of leads us in a difficult spot where we're not equipped almost to address the things that are tearing us apart. So I've been kind of talking to you more as a, as a researcher, but I'm also a parent myself and I'm a black parent. So I, I have three boys and the youngest now is 16. And witnessing them move from, uh, you know, being seen as children to being, you know, sort of treated as the objects of fear, you know, has been really difficult for me. And I think it's difficult for a lot of Black mothers. Um, you know, one of my sons, when he was you know, just 16 years old, he had already discovered that when many people looked at him, that they felt fear. And, and I just remember having a conversation about it. And he would say, you know, elevators are the worst. And that was because when the doors close, you know, people are trapped in this tiny space with someone that they have been taught to associate with danger. And, you know, my son would, you know, sort of sense their discomfort and he would smile and he would talk to them to try to put them at ease. And, and I just remember hearing this and thinking, you know, my child was a natural extrovert, just like his father, you know, but in, in that moment, I realized that his smile was not, you know, an invitation to would-be friends. It re really was a survival skill. And it was the skill that he had honed under these conditions, right? He had honed this skill, you know, over, you know, thousands of elevator rides. And the irony of all that was that nearly 100 years ago, the Tulsa race massacre began with a Black teenager accidentally stepping on the foot of a white woman as he entered the elevator. So she screamed and rumors spread that there was a black teenage boy who had sexually assaulted her. And this is in Tulsa, right? And so the area known as Black Wall Street was destroyed and over a thousand black homes were burned to the ground. And then they rounded up thousands of black people and placed them under armed guard. And all of this was just with one misstep. You know, so so this is our history and my sons and, you know, there are people, you know, in this country who are still struggling um, with that history. That reminds me of 
what I was feeling when I was reading your book, you share this really fascinating story about how you delved deeper and deeper into the roots of the dehumanization of Black people, all the mixed feelings that this must have brought up for you. And the whole time I'm feeling, oh my goodness, your bravery, your courage. And then you shared how you were a teacher at San Quentin with inmates. And that was a very, very moving story, all that you shared about that. And when this student in San Quentin commented to you, uh, he said, I appreciate you, I really do, but I don't know how you do it. We need this work, but how are you able to carry those facts? That's some real heavy stuff you just shared. And so I just, as a mother, as a person, that's why I told you when I wrote to you that you are a hero to me. Wow, that's, <laughs> I don't know if I deserve that kind of honor. It's people, you know, like you and lots of people now in this moment that gives me hope. You know, it's easier to do work on this as well when uh, you feel like it's work that can be heard and, and it's work that will resonate and it's work that will you know, sort of uh, <laughs> make a difference, you know, in the world. And so I get my uh, courage and I get my strength from, you know, meeting people like you and talking to people like you who really care and who want to make a difference and people who want to use, you know, their platform or whatever it is that they have to actually, you know, help people to grapple uh, with these issues and to help to make this a better society. And so, you know, my hat is off to you. Thank you. Well, I hope everybody reads your book. You delve into a lot of darkness. It's very uh, depressing in parts, like I've got to say, and sad and uh, just devastating, really. But then you bring all this hope and you bring these solutions and ideas in. It is very hopeful and it is, I dare to say, exciting and um, much needed and... Uh, I just want to share another quote from you where you say, bias is operating on a kind of cosmic level, connecting factors and conditions that we must individually make an effort to comprehend and control. And it deserves a cosmic response with everyone on board. And that's my hope too, that we can make change together. I mean, that's the only way it's going to happen. You're right, and we all have agency here. There's something every person can do in this fight. And so thank you for being in the fight. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Please check out some of the other podcasts on my website, JanetLansbury.com. They're all indexed by subject and category, so you should be able to find whatever topic you might be interested in. And both of my books are available in paperback at Amazon. No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame, and Elevating Child Care, A Guide to Respectful Parenting. You can also get them in ebook at Amazon, Apple, Google Play, or Barnes & Noble, and in audio at audible.com. You can get a free audio copy of either book at Audible by following the link in the liner notes of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We can do this. 
If you like Unruffled, you can listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.